Well, our text for this morning is Mark, uh, Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to uh, 12. And um, before I ask Brian to come forward, I just want to introduce the text that we'll be uh, looking at uh, this morning. Um, I'm assuming that most, if not all of you, have heard of the uh, smash hit of a cartoon known as Bluey. Um, it's just taken the world by storm. Um, I've heard that there's children in America who now have Australian accents because they've been spending so much time watching Bluey. Um, but Bluey is a lovely cartoon. It's a wonderful cartoon and wonderful stories uh, that are told in this cartoon, Bluey. And um, at point, quite emotional stories as well. Um, there was an episode of Bluey called Cricket. I don't know if you've seen the episode Cricket. Um, but I... I don't know, the first two or three times, maybe four times watching it, I couldn't get through it without crying. And um, Henry would look at me and he knew I was going to break into tears right at the end of the episode. But stories are often like that, aren't they? Stories can trigger all sorts of emotions. Happiness, stories can trigger emotions of happiness. Sadness, stories can make you sad. Frustration, stories can make you frustrated. Even angry. Some stories can make you angry. And not only is that true of stories, but the same story can trigger all of those emotions, can't it? You know, you might have watched a movie or read a book and, and experienced all of those emotions as you read the book or watch the movie. You're happy, then you're sad, then you're frustrated, then you're angry, and then you're happy again. And that brings us to this morning's text. Because Jesus tells a story here which, as stories often do, triggers all sorts of emotions. And there's three I want to look at. Firstly, the kind of emotions that the story triggers now. What kind of response do you feel as you read this story that Jesus tells you, the parable of the tenants? Secondly, I want to look at the emotions that it did trigger then, so when Jesus told the story for the first time, what kind of emotions did it trigger uh, at that point? And then thirdly, I want to look at the kind of emotions that it should trigger. Because notice that Jesus actually tells us how we should feel about this story that he tells. And as we'll see, the emotion that we should feel is not necessarily the emotion that we do feel as we hear this story. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So if I could ask Brian to come forward and bring our scripture reading for this morning, which again is Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. Thank you, Brian. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through to 12. And he began to speak to them in parables, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. 
he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the others or to others? Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Thank you, Brian. Well, will you pray with me as we begin here? Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you are here this morning. You are working through your word and we pray that your word would accomplish the purposes for which you send it. We thank you that we have that promise. Your word always accomplishes the purposes for which you send it. So may this word this morning accomplish your purposes. Um, May it make us more like Jesus. We thank you that you've given us your word to sanctify us. May this word sanctify us this morning. May it grow us in our love for you and for each other. May you help us, for we are so weak and needy. But we thank you that you are so full of grace. And we pray that you would work by your grace in our midst this morning through everything that takes place. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Wonderful. So as I said in the beginning, I want to look at the emotions of this story, the emotions that it generates now, perhaps, as we read it, the emotions that it generated then as Jesus told the story, and then finally the emotions that it should generate according to Jesus. But firstly, now. Now. As you read through this story, how does it make you feel? As you heard Brian read it a moment ago, how did it make you feel? What kind of emotions did you experience as you heard this story now? Well, there might be a mix. Firstly, initially reading the story, at least the first part of it, you might get a sense of beauty. If you slow down and consider the picture that Jesus is painting, you might get a sense of, of this is beautiful. Last month, my wife and I went to a wedding reception and it was held at a vineyard. And um, we walked outside just before 9 o'clock at night, which is what photographers call the blue light. You have the golden hour, then you have the blue light. And um, so there we were outside in this vineyard, and this beautiful blue twilight just bathing this gentle slope. And upon this gentle slope, there was line upon line of lush green grapes, and you have rolling hills in the background, and and trees dotting the landscape, and you, and you walk outside at night at a vineyard like we did, and, and you get the sense of, wow, this is beautiful. This is a slice of paradise. And so if you slow down and think about the picture that Jesus is painting in verse 1, and hearing about this man planting a vineyard, you might get that same sense. This man has done all this work, not of building something ugly, 
but building something beautiful. A vineyard is a beautiful thing, and this man has done all this work of building something beautiful. Secondly, you might get a sense of goodness. So having done all that work, the, the man leases this vineyard out to tenants. And you just imagine being a tenant in a vineyard. Imagine being a worker in a vineyard. This is something of a dream job, isn't it? It's not back-breaking labor being a tenant in a vineyard. At least compared with the work that he had to do of building it, it's not back-breaking labor. It's not undesirable work. This isn't scrubbing the toilets or cleaning up vomit. And it's not high-pressure work either, is it, being a tenant in this vineyard? This isn't Friday night McDonald's at 6 p.m. Instead, what does their job look like? These tenants. It looks like getting up every day, walking outside, taking in this beautiful view, and then walking amongst the vines and, and just sort of tending to these vines. So you might get a sense of the master's goodness. That's the job that he's given them. But then as the story continues, what happens? Things take a dark turn, don't they? Picking up in verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. So we go, don't we, from, from perhaps the sense of beauty and the sense of the master's goodness, the man's goodness, the beauty of the vineyard, the goodness of the man who planted it, to what? The sense of recoil. The sense of, this is just monstrous behavior on the part of these tenants. Just think about what's happening. Three years roll by, and the man says to himself, oh, that vineyard that I planted, it should be producing fruit right about now. I'll send a servant to go and collect some of the fruit that's rightfully mine. And, and so he sends a servant to go and collect what his what is rightfully his. He says to the servant, you know, you go and bring some bring me back some of the fruit. And so he sends the servant away and then the man waits for a week, say, and the servant comes back. And what's happened? That the man looks at the servant's face and his eye is swollen shut and there's dried blood coming from his nose and his lip is cut and there's a graze on his cheek. And the man says, what happened? And he says, the tenants did this. He says, are you okay? Where's the fruit? And the servant says, they didn't give me any. They just gave me this black eye. He says, you stay here. I'll bandage you up. He calls for another servant. He says, you go, maybe a bulkier servant this time. He says, you go collect some of the fruit. I'll sort this guy out. You go collect some of the fruit. And then another week rolls by, and he comes back, and his head's been hit. He's got a big gash on his head, and his clothes are 
torn and it's clear that he's been severely mistreated. And he said, what happened to you? And he says, the tenants did this. He says, where's the fruit? He said, they didn't give me any. They just hit me on the head. And he says, okay, this is insane. I'll send someone else. I'll sort both of you guys out now. I'll send someone else. And what happens this time? Well, it's even worse, isn't it? They beat the next servant so badly that he dies. And it just keeps happening. And it just keeps happening. Until verse 6. Look with me at verse 6. He had still one other son. A beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Now don't miss something. The master, the man is doing what here? The answer is, he's giving them another chance. He doesn't say, son, you go, here's the Rambo belt of ammunition, and here's a big automatic machine gun, sort those tenants out, go and kill them. That's not what's happening here, is it? He says, they will respect my son, as in they'll listen to my son as in they have another chance. You think about the goodness of the master. He's giving them another chance. They've beaten his servants. They've killed his servants. He's giving them another chance with his son. But instead of taking that chance, what happens? Verses 7 and 8. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So when you think about what's happening in the story, when you really feel what's happening, when you, when, you, when you understand what's going on, what's the emotion? The emotion is one of, this is just monstrous, babe. This is a monstrous picture. At the end of the story, how does it close? Outside the vineyard. This beautiful vineyard that these tenants were allowed to work in. Outside of that vineyard that this man built with his own hands is the body of his own son, lifeless. That's the picture. And he's lifeless because he was murdered by the men into whose care he entrusted that vineyard. And he was dead, not because he did anything wrong, but because he came to claim what was rightfully his father's, and they killed him for it. It's a monstrous picture. And that really is the dominant emotion that it possibly triggers within us now. All the more so because it's done against the the background of the goodness of the man and the beauty of the vineyard. You recoil. This is monstrous. Now, that's not wrong to feel that way reading this story now, but there is something else that we should feel that Jesus tells us we should feel. But before we get there, I want to look at the emotion that it triggered in people then. How did people feel then when Jesus told the story? This is our second heading, and the answer is in verse 12, but we'll read from verse 9. Jesus asks, what will the owner of the vineyard do? That is, what will he do in response to the violence that culminated in the murder of his own son? The answer 
He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And Jesus goes on. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. If you were here last week, you'll remember that the they in verse 12 is the Sanhedrin, so the Jewish Supreme Court of the time. So in terms of religious leaders, it didn't get any higher than the Sanhedrin. And notice what their emotional response is to the story, hearing the story told them. It's their emotional response. Well, it's very interesting. The Sanhedrin the religious leaders recognize that Jesus is telling the parable against them. That's the phrase Mark uses. He's telling the story against them. We sometimes tell stories against people, don't we? If you've got a child who constantly says they're sick, but they're not sick, and they say they're sick because they want to play Switch or watch cartoons, you might sit them down and say to them, you know, there was once a boy who cried wolf. And what are you doing at that point? You're you're, you're telling a story, as it were, against them. The religious leaders know that Jesus is doing that right now. The religious leaders know that Jesus is telling this story against them. To put it simply, the religious leaders know that they're the tenants in the story. There's no question in their minds about that. They're not like, what's this about? Where are we in this story? They know they're the tenants. They know they're the tenants who have acted in this monstrous way in this story. But notice what their emotional response is to it being told. It's not recoil. They don't say, oh my goodness, how could those tenants act in such a monstrous way and how could we act in such a monstrous way and how can we avoid it? How can we avoid being like those tenants in that story? We know we're the tenants. How can we avoid being like that? There's no sense of the horror of the story. Instead, their response is one of anger. Jesus finishes telling the story about these tenants. They recognize that they're the tenants, and what do they want to do? They want to arrest him. Now, just think about the irony here. The religious leaders want to do to Jesus what the tenants did to the son in the parable. That's remarkable, isn't it? Jesus himself, the Son of God, tells a story about a son being taken and murdered by the tenants of a vineyard. They hear that story. They recognize they're the tenants in the story. And their response is not, well, we better avoid being like the tenants. Their response is, let's be like the tenants then. Exactly like the tenants. Because they want to arrest Jesus. They want to take Jesus and they want to kill him just like 
the tenants took the son in the parable and killed him. And you look at that, that rich irony, that profound paradox, that, that profound wisdom on the part of the Lord. And you think, wow. The son tells a story about tenants who act wickedly towards a son and they, who were the tenants in the story, seek to act wickedly toward the son. And it makes you marvel. And that brings us to our final heading, how we should feel hearing this story. We skipped over this earlier, but read Jesus' own words right after he tells this story. He quotes from Psalm 118, and he says this, verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Go back to our first heading. How did you feel reading the story? You get to the end of the story of the tenants, and the word possibly on your mind is just the word monstrous. It closes with the lifeless body of the son outside the vineyard that his father built, murdered not because he did anything wrong, but because he came to claim what was rightfully his fathers. You get to the end of that story, and the word in your mind, if it's like my mind, is the word monstrous. But what's the word in Jesus' mind? It's not the word monstrous. That's not the word on his lips. And if his lips are any indication of what's in his mind, that's not the word in his mind. The word in his mind and the word on his lips is not the word monstrous. It's the word marvelous. Notice, verse 11, this was the Lord's doing and it is what? Not monstrous in our eyes, marvelous in our eyes. And the question is why? Why is the story of the tenants not ultimately a monstrous story, though that's probably our emotion as we read it, but a marvelous story? Why? Well, notice that Psalm 118, the psalm that Jesus quotes, tells us why it's a marvelous and not a monstrous story. In verse 10, we read these famous words. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So it's just like the tenants, isn't it? The, the, the stone that the builders rejected. It's just like the tenants. Just like the tenants looked at the servant, the servants, and they looked at the son and they rejected them. They treated them as worse than worthless. These builders look at the stone and they think that's worthless. They reject that stone. It's no good. Throw it out. And what happens? That stone that they rejected, that they threw out as worthless, becomes the cornerstone, the exalted stone, the premier stone. And then comes verse 11. And this is why it's marvelous. This is why the parable of the tenants is a marvelous story, not a monstrous story. The psalmist says that that dynamic, the stone that the builders rejecting, becoming the cornerstone, that dynamic 
is not an accident. It's not a happenstance. It's not chance. The psalmist says that rejection and ultimate exaltation of that stone is who's doing? The Lord's doing. The Lord's doing. It's not chance. It's the Lord's doing. It was the Lord's doing that the builders rejected that stone. That was his will that they would reject that stone. It was the Lord's doing that the expert builders looked at it and said, that's worthless. And it was the Lord's doing that that stained stone that they called worthless was given the place of highest prominence. And that's marvelous, isn't it? We love stories like that. It's one of it's probably people's favorite story, the story of the underdog, isn't it? The one everyone sneers at, everyone rejects, everyone looks down on, they make it to the top. Those are some of the best stories that people tell in movies and books. And this is that kind of story. And that's why Jesus can ultimately call the story of the tenants a marvelous story. Because the rejection by the tenants of the servants and then ultimately of the son, that's the Lord's doing. He's at work in that rejection and through that rejection. And if you just read the parable, you don't get that, do you? And that's why when it closes, you think this is a monstrous story because you think, here's this poor man, he's planted a vineyard, and these tenants are just completely out of his control. He can't control them. He sends servant after servant after servant. They get beaten and killed, and, and then he sends his son, and he gets killed. You think, this is out of control. These tenants are out of control, and this is a horrible story. And if that was true, it would be monstrous, wouldn't it? But it's not. Because Jesus makes clear all of that was the Lord's doing. They weren't out of his control. Their rejection of the servants and of the son, that wasn't out of the Lord's control. That was the Lord's doing. And the remarkable thing about this text is that you see all of that beautiful wisdom at work in real time. It's, it's, it blows your mind, this text, when you think about what's happening. That dynamic, the stone that the builders are rejecting, becoming the cornerstone, that dynamic is at work in real time in this text because it's the Lord himself who tells this parable that leads them to want to arrest him. In other words, it's the Lord's doing. It's at work in real time, and that is marvelous. Such wisdom, such power, such knowledge, such love, and we should just sit back and marvel at it. And as we close, I just want to say a couple of things. Firstly, we should marvel at what Jesus did then. There is something so wonderful about just forgetting yourself and marveling at something else. You just forget about yourself, your own messy heart, messy mind, all of that, messy life, and just look at something beautiful, look at something wise, look at something good, and just marvel at it. And you see that in the authors of Scripture, don't you? They, they look at the work of the Lord, they forget about themselves, they just look at the work of the Lord, and they just marvel at it. They think, wow, it's so beautiful and it's so big and I can't understand it and I can't take it 
in. And there's something so mentally and emotionally healthy about that because instead of being curved in on yourself and how you feel, you just say, forget it, let me look at the Lord, his goodness, his love, his wisdom, his beauty. And the cross is the ultimate place to do that. You take it, you look at the cross and you can't take it all in. Jesus himself tells a parable about the tenants killing a son and the religious leaders hear it and they know the tenants, that they are the tenants and they seek to kill him. And they do so four days later. This is Tuesday of Passion. And you look at that and you can't take all of that in. It doesn't fit in your mind. But a joy-giving, life-giving, health-giving practice is to just look at it and say, wow, marvelous, marvelous. So we should marvel at what Jesus did then. And secondly, I want to say this as we close, we should marvel at what Jesus is doing now. We began by talking about how beautiful vineyards are and how they're something of a slice of paradise and how laboring in a vineyard would be really something of a dream job. But there's a really wonderful little detail in this parable that's really easy to miss, and it's this. We are in a vineyard right now. I know that might sound strange, but we are in a vineyard right now, this beautiful place where it's wonderful to labor. We are in a vineyard right now. Notice this detail. The man in the parable doesn't come and destroy the vineyard. He doesn't say, that's it for the vineyard business. I'm going to go do something else. He doesn't say that. Instead, what happens? He destroys the tenants, but he gives the vineyard to others, which means somewhere in the world, this vineyard still exists. And where does it exist? Where is this vineyard? What is this vineyard? It's the church. The church is this vineyard. And the reason we know that is that in the Gospels, according to Matthew, this vineyard represents the kingdom of God. And there's only one institution in the world that Jesus identifies the kingdom of God with. And what is that place? It's the church. Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church And in almost the same breath, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The church is this vineyard now, and as laborers in it, which we all are, we're called to do what? To bear fruit, to do what these tenants failed to do. And just as the vineyard is beautiful, so too is the fruit that we're called to bear. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness self-control. May such beautiful fruit mark this church as we behold our beautiful Savior and his wonderful word. Will you pray with me as we close? Our gracious Father, we pray that we as your church would be marked by the beautiful fruit that is the fruit of the Spirit. We pray that we would bear fruit, the fruit that is rightfully yours, the fruit of your Spirit. And we pray that we would do that as we behold that fruit in the person of your Son, in his love and kindness and gentleness and wisdom. May you do that in this place for your glory and for our good and the good of our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.